Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. College hoops has began, college football is into the last two weeks, and we've got all the NFL, NBA, and hockey action on Bet Online Sportsbook. Use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. Bet Online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is a Wednesday, November 16th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening we have got a big show coming at you today Uh, last week we talked about the Houston Astros and baseball season ending and I wanted to follow up on that because there have been some new developments around the Houston Astros and Jeff Passan wrote this uh, in-depth investigative piece with his inside information from ESPN talking about the uh, the champion Astros behind the scenes turmoil the the big front-facing story is that the general manager didn't get retained after winning the championship and we'll talk about that coming up later in the show today where I wanted to start today is talking about what I've called for about a year and a half a sports story of a generation and that is what is happening with Deshaun Watson now the Cleveland Browns the legal process and this, what we have described over dozens of podcasts now is an unprecedented level of sexually predatory behavior from a star athlete. And as it relates to Deshaun Watson, the first thing I'm always going to say is that whenever we talk about this case, we always separate the moral and ethical parts of this case. We've talked about the timeline of events and details specifically related to the Deshaun Watson timeline. We've done podcasts now going back really going back a year and a half at this point and it's it's actually really helped inform my decision by do or my ability to discern information and learn more about cases in which we're talking about gender violence and sexual assault and really women's right with women's rights within the workplace that are denied on account of systems and structures that are in place and so what we're looking at within this case specifically is at least 30 known instances of sexual harassment and sexual assault by Deshaun Watson and him not facing the proper level of accountability that could match this based on the presumption that because he is worth hundreds of millions of dollars to the National Football League, there is no circumstance in which 
Deshaun Watson was ever going to face proper accountability, regardless of where you set the moral and ethical bounds within this case. There was no circumstance in which he was ever going to be able to be held properly accountable because all of these gigantic institutions are protecting him, combined with podcasts that we talked about in May. Uh, July 27th, we talked about not just the NFL's legal process, but the civil court cases and the criminal court cases. These institutions such as the legal systems in Texas, are not equipped to handle crimes against women. And so once we get down to the institutions like corporate NFL systems and the made-up legal system that they, that they created in 2015 after the Ray Rice incident and then have tweet, uh, tinkered with and changed ever since, you have a situation in which there is never going to be proper accountability based on these institutions that are in place because these institutions are st- systemically designed to fail women at at various turns. And that's a broader systemic conversation that we started to talk about on October 18th, which was the podcast that talked about... Desh- we did a full hour-long podcast talking about the return of Deshaun Watson. And the reason I bring it up today is not to rehash this conversation. It is to direct you to that podcast. I want to take time here today to direct you to that podcast we did on October 18th. And the reason I did it a month ago, leading up to his return, is that when we arrive at the week when Deshaun Watson is going to return, it is going to be a storyline across the NFL. And when that happens, you're going to lose a bit of control when it comes to media narratives around Deshaun Watson. Because once it becomes part of the news cycle, everyone has something to say, informed or not informed, about this situation. And so the reason I am so early on here directing you to that podcast that we did seven weeks before his return, and now we are two weeks away from the weekly news cycle of his return, the suspension ends after the November 27th game that the Cleveland Browns play. So beginning Monday the 28th and continuing through the week, that's going to be the conversation is about his return. And it's going to be something that everyone is going to weigh in on. It is incredibly predictable that everyone is going to weigh in on this situation, which is good. It's good to have that, especially when informed people are going to be talking about this and talk about the real victims and talk about accountability, and talk about these this really complex case again. What's really going to be important as the weeks go along is every. it's good that there's going to be attention drawn to this. It's also going to serve as a negative because, again, everyone is going to start weighing in over the next two weeks. Specifically two weeks from now, everyone is going to start weighing in on this case. And so it was incredibly important to prepare ourselves because... Like I articulate at the end of the October 18th show, and again, we talk about for 30 minutes the specific details of why it is that there should be accountability held, what the legal systems have done to create accountability, stories of the victims, timelines of events, and getting into the NFL's made-up legal system and accountability structures through corporations. All of that leads to the point that I want to articulate here, and maybe it would be good to pause here and listen to the October 18th show. If you listen to the October 18th show that we did talking about Deshaun Watson, thank you for your support there. You will understand some of these points because they're what I articulate at the end of that episode, which is 
we need to take the time to prepare for this because we're never going to get a circumstance like this again to change for the future. And we're not going to make the necessary improvements for the future because from a basic fundamental standpoint, it does not serve the football media interest and it does not serve the football spending interest to make long-term reforms around this case. As muddy and as difficult as this Deshaun Watson situation has been, it has produced some measure of accountability to the point where the corporation of the NFL doesn't stand to lose a lot of money. It's had a ton of incredibly disrespectful points as it relates to him getting traded and and as Ashley Solis detailed in the HBO Real Sports piece that we've cited, feeling like he's being rewarded for bad behavior, which he is, and because the bad behavior helped enable his trade out of the Houston Texans, a place he wanted to leave before all of these lawsuits came and, and all of these details came to public knowledge. And reporting got behind this case and detailed exactly what it was that he should be held accountable for, the crimes and the sexual assaults and the sexual harassment and sexually predatory behavior in general that he engaged in as it relates to the 30 cases that we know of, of sexual assault, or as the NFL investigation with Mary Jo White, uh, yeah, I believe it was Mary Jo White, called it. Uh, nonviolent sexual assault. So when we're talking about sexual assault in these cases, what we are talking about is accountability needing to be held specifically for that. And because we're never going to have a case with this high profile of an athlete engaging in this specific type of predatory behavior against women, having the broader conversation is something that we're probably never going to get the opportunity to again, or at least the closest thing to it in terms of someone of this high-profile stature that allows and enables for change to occur, relates to Kobe Bryant, and that was before I was even born. I didn't know until Kobe Bryant had had died that we're talking about him going through a rape trial in which he was going to be convicted. According to the, the prosecutor in Colorado, he was going to get a conviction. He was probably going to serve jail time if that woman hadn't been pressured to drop her lawsuit right before the verdict had come out. And so what this situation finds him, finds us in is when we talk about his return, and the thing I've been articulating all year is do not engage with the Cleveland Browns, do not talk about the Cleveland Browns, do not... It, it, it basically, they exist, but they don't exist. That is a way to form accountability in terms of talking about the Browns and talking about NFL circles. And it helps that they suck this year in terms of what other people are doing beyond it. I think it would be easy for me to not talk about the Cleveland Browns because I already feel disgusting talking about the Cleveland Browns in any context outside of this specific case with Deshaun Watson and what they've done to enable and protect a sexual predator. And so what this situation is, is a chance to actually create responsible dialogue and foster long-term change as it relates to how we're going to allow this person to reintegrate into the NFL without facing proper measures of accountability. And there is no scenario in which he could face proper accountability under the current structures and systems that exist. Some of those structures and systems may change as the years go along. It's going to take a long time to get to that place. And so what we find ourselves in this situation bucking up against is just moving him back into the foray as if nothing is happening and allowing him to play football. And a conversation where everyone is going to have 
something to weigh in on once it actually comes to the point of coming back. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to take these seven weeks, these 11 weeks, these 16 weeks since the, the suspension was handed down and actually work to be responsible and informed once the time comes for the return of Deshaun Watson. And since that is now very, very close to returning, two weeks away from that news cycle picking up, like two weeks from today, you're going to hear every podcast, sports radio show, TV network in a partnership with the NFL, that's when it's going to be okay to talk about Deshaun Watson. That's when it's going to be convenient to talk about Deshaun Watson. So as this becomes a case that I feel it needs more coverage and needs more reporting even as he's not suspend even as he's suspended and facing whatever measure of accountability could even be contrived from the situation which is the fine and the suspension and paid leave for a year last year with Houston which I don't think of as being nearly the punishment that other people point to it being he got paid 40 million dollars to not play football for the Texans and this year he got a small reduction in his $253 million fully guaranteed contract and doesn't get to play 11 football games. There has not been proper accountability because it was impossible to have proper accountability, regardless of where you set the moral and ethical bar in this place. The thing I've articulated from the beginning, everyone sets their morals and ethics in different places. What is true about this case is that from the lawsuits that we have details about, from the reporting done by Jenny Vrentus of Sports Illustrated and the New York Times, from Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, and other reporters that have been following this case closely, we know that we have at least 30 cases of sexual assault, sexually predatory behavior, and sexual harassment by Deshaun Watson as he engaged with massage therapists over a span of four years. And so what we are looking, I mean, specifically in these 17 months, as it relates to the lawsuits, they are within 17 months. We know about a pattern of behavior that goes back four years. Those are the facts of this case. And because of the institutions that exist, there's never going to be a proper measure of accountability for at least 30 cases of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sexually predatory behavior. And because that is the case, now he's returning without facing proper accountability, and that feels incredibly gross. It feels morally abhorrent, and it's incredibly difficult to work through that while also acknowledging that many people are totally okay, based on where they set their morals and ethics, totally okay with welcoming him back. They feel he has served a proper level of accountability, or if he hasn't, they don't feel morally or ethically responsible in that circumstance, many people fall under that category. Many people fall under the proper level of accountability and many people fall under not enough accountability. The facts are that there is not enough accountability in this case, but morally and ethically, you can set the bar wherever you may choose. And that's totally okay as it relates to your personal comfort level, as it relates to this conversation that we're having right now. Now, the thing I always say is, Usually the people who are the ones more likely to be victimized, in this case women, specifically women within a certain profession like sports that has a deep-seated systemic history of misogyny and exclusion of women and women not being protected, really just with basic levels of safety and security within the confines of sports, those are the people I'm more inclined to listen to and draw my own moral and ethical conclusions than the people, overwhelmingly men, overwhelmingly straight men, 
overwhelmingly men of morally and ethically compromising behavior, or I should say exhibit the behavior of someone with moral and ethical compromises, more likely to lean to the vic- the people more likely to be informed and more likely to have this personally affect them than I am to the people who lack a certain level of empathy or more or potentially moral and ethical conduct in this situation. Again, whichever direction the the people more likely to be informed and more likely to have a rooted interest in the case, that's where I'm more likely to lean in terms of setting my own moral and ethical bar around this case. But again, it's incredibly complex. And so what I look at in this is because we are all going into a space where he's not facing a proper measure of accountability and because everyone has a different level of information around this case because of what they know or what they have seeked out, I'm probably one of the more informed people as it relates to this case because I've done 12 journalistically reported podcasts on this case and have followed the details as if I'm a reporter. I'm, I don't have necessarily journalistic credentials, but I have journalistic training following this case like a reporter, I'm probably more informed on this case than most. And so what the information of this case, as I've articulated many times, says is that there has there was no chance that he was going to face a proper measure of accountability because of what the corporate institutions, the legal institutions are set up as, as it relates to systemic problems with protecting women and, and enabling crimes against women and not getting proper accountability for crimes against women. Because of these systemic issues within institutions there was never and the fact that deshaun watson stands to make the nfl hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 15 years there was never going to be a proper measure of accountability and so what i want to articulate very clearly and we articulate this at the end of the october 18th podcast is take these next two weeks to continue to inform yourself and be responsible when it comes to the conversation around Deshaun Watson's return. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to be someone with a platform. You don't have to be someone who is on TV or does sports talk or has a league partnership with the NFL. You just need to be responsible and informed as an individual or as a small group in order to actually take lessons and learn from this case that as I've talked about is a sports story for a generation and that is exactly why I wanted to take time today two weeks away from his return to continue to articulate these points why I will take the same time next week to talk about this and why once we get to the week that is I'm gonna not discuss and then return after everyone has let it cycle through the news because it's incredibly predictable that this is going to be the case. After the news cycle goes through talking about the um, abhorrent nature, it's going to move on to the next thing. The same way no one has been talking about this in a meaningful matter over the last eight to ten weeks, perhaps people are taking the time to get informed. Perhaps people are taking the time to actually develop nuanced conversation around the information that is present in this case, and then it will be articulated as such in two weeks with people who have platforms, some partnered with the NFL, some not. I just feel that I'm going to be let down and the news cycle is going to work through it because there have been more abhorrent cases than Deshaun Watson. I don't want to compare like levels of trauma, but there have been similar situations to Deshaun Watson in which the news cycle has just kind of moved on when there isn't a presence of new information or when there isn't anything to be added to the case. And so... What I want to articulate here is 
be responsible as it relates to Deshaun Watson's return. The best way you can be responsible by my vantage point, I'm not going to say the best way. Let's let's correct that. Not the best way. One of the ways that you can be responsible as it relates to the return of Deshaun Watson is to listen to the podcast that we did on October 18th. That is the one that I would point to and say you should definitely listen to that. And there is a link to that podcast in the description to this episode. Uh, I put up Apple Podcast and Spotify links. Uh, if you listen on another platform, I know most of you listen on Apple and Spotify, but if you listen on another platform, just find our feed of podcasts and scroll down to October 18th. That is the podcast that I would point to and articulate you should listen to that as a way to inform you. And if you feel so inclined, perhaps go to the story done by Jenny Vrentas uh, of Sports Illustrated and the New York Times talking about specific details. Watch The Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel from May of 2022. Um, we've done six podcasts as it relates to this. Uh, if I'm remembering some of the dates roughly correctly, it is August 19th, August 2nd, July 27th, June 22nd, June 8th, and one in May. I don't remember the date of the May episode, but the May episode was after the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel piece came out. If you feel so inclined, that's seven hours of talking about this with relatively informed journalism. Again, I don't have the journalistic credibility as such, but we did actually have the journalistic training to dissect information, read through it, and find what the most important details of this were. And we talk about the morals and ethics and the exactly what it was that Deshaun Watson did when he sexually assaulted and sexually harassed and engaged in sexually predatory behavior with these at least 30 women that we know of. If you detail that and understand the legal ramifications and measures of accountability, I personally believe that you will be a slightly more informed person and it will help to be a more responsible, nuanced converser on this case as it relates to this, as hopefully these last 22 minutes have also articulated in terms of what is important as it relates to Deshaun Watson and the return to the Cleveland Browns, despite the fact that institutions have systemically failed in such a way and they were never designed to create proper accountability. These institutions have, whether it be the NFL and their made-up legal system or the actual legal systems in Texas in which it's incredibly difficult to prosecute cases of sexual assault, and in Texas specifically, there's a higher bar for criminal sexual assault with details that are difficult when you're bringing cases forward months uh, months after the fact, even though it is appropriate for women to bring these cases forward whenever they feel so inclined because it's incredibly difficult, especially when you're bringing cases forward against powerful people. And so this is a circumstance in which I hope these last 22 minutes have also provided some level of information as it relates to this case. But if you're going to spend any time informing yourself prior to this point, I will point to the October 18th podcast that we did as the first place to start that I can offer. I think after that, you should uh, perhaps read the in full Jenny Vrentas piece. You should read the in full uh, or watch the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel piece that's been done on this. Uh, Mina Kimes did a podcast back when he was traded that is incredibly articulate about the emotions of trying to talk about this while also recognizing that you have conflicts of interest from league partners. 
Um, there, there are other places you can find more information and the best place I would, I, I did it again. I did it again. I don't want to say the best because I'm just a dude without journalistic credibility, but does have journalistic training. The best place is not necessarily myself. I am not the best. The first place I would recommend starting is the October 18th podcast that we did talking about this exact case. It's four weeks removed, and yet it still applies as it relates to the broader conversation about the specific detail, the broader conversation about the morals and ethics of this case, the legal aspects of this case, the NFL's made up legal system and how that creates some measure of accountability, why the accountability should help provide some level of closure for victims more than anything else, systemic changes that might come up in the future, and at, at the very end, concluding many of the same points that we articulated here and why it's so important to talk about this before we get to the week that he's slated to return, which, as I said earlier, is now just two weeks away. In order to be informed and nuanced, we should take the time before he returns because once the week arrives and it becomes part of the news cycle, everyone informed or otherwise is going to have talking points around this Deshaun Watson return, despite the fact that he hasn't faced proper measures of accountability because of the systemic failures of both the legal institutions and the institutions of the NFL in providing accurate levels of accountability for these 30 women who have brought their cases forward against Deshaun Watson, either through lawsuits or with journalism done by Jenny Vrentas, and in a broader sense, systemic failure of institutions to provide proper accountability for victims of sexual assault. All right, so Jeff Passan, who is an ESPN baseball reporter, basically you could think of like the Schefter for baseball at ESPN, Jeff Passan wrote a piece about the Houston Astros. Uh, He called it Inside the Champion Astros Behind the Scenes Turmoil, and Six days after winning the World Series, well, I think we did a podcast like four days after they won the World Series last week talking about the remarkability of the Astros and that dynasty, uh, a team that I've been just immensely fascinated by over the last four years to six years, Um, even post-cheating, even like right around the time of the cheating scandal. It's just they've been so fascinating. The same way yesterday we talked about the Buffalo Bills, the Houston Astros have just been so remarkably fascinating and so this time around the thing that I saw with the Houston Astros was this story where Passon puts it out and it reminded me that like two days after we talked about the Houston Astros for like an hour the Houston Astros general manager just left this contract was not renewed didn't get brought back and it's the uh, Jeff Passon notes in the story it's the fastest to have a champion general manager not return to the team. It's the first time that the champion general manager is not going to be the general manager the season after, and he didn't get retained past October 31st. Um, They ended up finishing the World Series, so like, you know, he was kind of a representative after the fact, but it's just kind of crazy 
that he didn't have a contract and at a certain point they decided to go their separate ways and for those who don't know this is just kind of the the setup here so after the cheating scandal with the Houston Astros uh, they hired James Click from the uh, they hired him from the Tampa Bay Rays and he was kind of the stopgap person to run the team but all of these I call it a machine the machine was still intact Jeff Lunau, there's a book about the Astros, both uh, the MVP machine and Cheated, which is a book about the scandal itself, old-timey baseball writers, but I've read a couple books about this, and basically the Astros, um, they they fired a whole bunch of staff people, Jeff Lunau is notorious for being an, an asshole, and he ended up tearing the thing to the ground, integrating the minor leagues and the major league organization like a machine, and that ruthless efficiency ended up being a competitive advantage for the Houston Astros, who were kind of ahead of the game as it came to the next Moneyball revolution, which was using analytics to develop players and using analytics to improve player performance instead of just using analytics to identify players like what happened with the Oakland A's and Moneyball. And so the Houston Astros ended up going through that situation and what Houston ended up finding themselves in is a circumstance in which Lunau got fired and AJ Hinch got fired as a result of the cheating scandal because they the major league baseball in order to investigate protected the players so they would talk and then found out it was all on the players and three managers and a general manager ended up getting tossed Lunau never made it back to baseball AJ Hinch and Belt uh AJ Hinch and Alex Cora have gotten manager jobs again Carlos Beltran hasn't gotten a manager job again and so Crick ends up, or sorry, Click ends up getting hired from Tampa, and the machine is already in place, and they just have to make some moves in order to keep it afloat. And after Click gets there, they go one game away from the World Series in 2020, lose the World Series in 2021, win the World Series in 2022, which in and of itself is already like the greatest three-year stretch of any team other than the Giants in the 2010s and the Astros before the cheating scandal happened, 2017 to 2019. So basically they they have this incredible run and Click ends up going and Passon kind of provides some light on this situation. I'm just going to read directly from the story because I think it's super interesting. It's not behind a paywall or anything. It's just, I find this part interesting. Um, Over the past year, the disarray in the Astros front office has exposed itself often enough that employees at all levels wondered how exactly an organization so adept on the field could be so chaotic among those tasked with building that on-field unit. They knew about the palace intrigue, had watched the -the behind-the-scenes machinations that had persisted throughout the season. They had one Hall of Fame advisor with a reputation for yelling at people, Reggie Jackson, Another frequently questioning the organization's direction, Jeff Bagwell. All the while, a general manager was under siege, and the owner who had vowed to take a more hands-on approach because of that crisis watched it all play out. But suddenly, last week, the information spigot turned off. Rumors swirled about the future of the organization, and no one could get an answer. By Friday, after the news of James Click's eyebrow-raising ouster, one thing was clear— The only person with clarity over what was happening with the Astros, owner Jim Crane, was disinclined to tip his hand. Now, those inside the Astros are asking questions that World Series winning teams rarely must ask. Is the team that reached six American League Championship Series, four World Series, and won a pair of championships in the last six years 
really considering pivoting from the analytics-heavy approach that built the team into a monster? Without Click, who will shepherd the team forward? And is the answer to that question perhaps the person already at the center of the front office dysfunction? Said one Astros employee, quote, Sometimes I wonder if Jim Crane, the owner, thinks he's Jerry Jones, who is among the dozen people with knowledge of the organization with whom ESPN spoke to better understand the inner workings of arguably the most successful franchise in baseball. Not since Larry McPhail in 1947 has a championship franchise parted ways with its top baseball executive so soon after a title. But what became clear over those conversations was Crane's willingness to meddle in baseball operations decisions, much like the Dallas Cowboys owner who also serves as general manager. It's a path certainly in Crane's purview as owner, but rare amongst his peers in baseball. And it suggests that Click's work always came with impediments. Crane sources say, again, the owner is Jim Crane. I should have articulated that on the front. Crane sources said, felt coming into the 2022 season his team needed more baseball men involved in operations decisions and invited Jeff Bagwell and Reggie Jackson into the team's weekly senior baseball operations meetings. Crane sources said killed an agreed upon deal for Chicago Cubs catcher Wilson Contreras at the trade deadline. Crane also personally negotiated the three-year $34.5 million contract that brought reliever Rafael Montero back to the team, a deal that was widely seen in the industry as a hefty price to give a 32-year-old with only one good big league season. It's a trend that began in February 2020, during the Astros' first press conference addressing the crisis-causing sign-stealing scandal, when Crane said he planned to be more hands-on with baseball operations. Crane had brought on Click and Dusty Baker after Lunau and A.J. Hinch left or were fired in the wake of the scandal. What Crane had appreciated most about Lunau was the conviction with which he made his decisions. Crane appreciated, two sources familiar with his thinking said, the efficiency and ruthlessness of Lunau's operation, seeing it was similar to how Crane ran his other businesses. Over time, Crane would learn that that was not Click's style. Though Click wasn't indecisive, he did not preen about with what one person deemed Lunau's institutional arrogance, which Jim thought was an admirable thing. Going into the ALCS in his first season and a World Series in his second brought, bought Click little goodwill. He came in the 2022 season, the final year of his contract, and with support of ownership withering. Disagreements over player evaluations furthered the, chas- the chasm between the sides and further isolated Click. Dusty Baker was among those who convinced Crane to kill the trade that would have sent Jose Urquidy to the Cubs for Contreras. Bagwell, whom Jim might trust more than anyone, according to one source, was critical of the Astros player development system, even as it was graduating eventual ALCS and World Series MVP Jeremy Pena. Jackson, who joined the Astros in May 2021 as an executive assistant, despite never playing for the organization, yelled at members of the team's front office this year and later would apologize, according to sources. Had the Astros lost in the postseason, Crane almost certainly would have fired Click before his contract expired. But they didn't lose. The team Click helped assemble the team he had stabilized in the aftermath of a scandal that left it tottering, just kept winning. And so I'm going to pause here before coming back to the case. And so what we're talking about here is an Astros team that pioneered 
the second Moneyball revolution, which is kind of a cheap way of talking about it, but basically the idea of top-to-bottom institution um, developing players and being all in line and using data and analytic-heavy approaches and being able to build a machine that can replace George Springer and replace Carlos Correa with cheaper options that actually produce at higher levels. And they've done this all over the place. We talked about last week how they went from Verlander and McCullers in 2017 being the only pitchers still on staff in the 2021 championship run. And then this year, Framber Valdez was their number two starter. And it was... um, the guy who threw the no-hitter, I'm blanking, I'm so mad. Oh, Christian Javier, that's who I was thinking of. Christian Javier ended up throwing a no-hitter in the World Series, wasn't on the team a few years ago. Urdikidi, who they mentioned in that piece, the last two years he was part of their uh, World Series, well, World Series rotation in 2021, playoff rotation in 2020. And Garcia uh, is another pitcher in that group there, and they've developed bullpen pieces and all that stuff. And so, uh, Jeremy Pena is the classic case we talked about where Carlos Correa walks out the door and they replace him with Pena. Correa went four for 47, or him and Bregman went four for 47 or six for 47 in the World Series. And they slide in Jeremy Pena and Pena wins ALCS MVP and World Series MVP. And the stat that's still amazing to me is that Jose Altuve went one for 28 to start the playoffs and Houston went 7-0 and in those games. And no star, no Hall of Famer like Altuve ever gets to age that gracefully, where you can go 1-for-28 as the leadoff hitter, and they still go 7-0 and in those games. And so what's interesting about this is that the guy who's the stopgap for Lunau, the owner doesn't like him in the way that he appreciated Lunau and the way that he ran the team. And so because of that, you kind of have a disagreement between ownership that is getting to a meddling point. And we're going to talk about this more because the owner is going to hire the next general manager or president. And so what I'm interested in is that if they go bucking up against the approach that has already worked, is that the sign that their competitive advantage will dissipate? Or is this a sign that they are making a correct pivot? And the thing is that I don't know the answer. And I also bet you that Jim Crane doesn't know the answer. And that's the interesting part about what's coming up here with meddlesome owners is that the best the best leaders put people in their organizations in positions to succeed. They hire good people and they put those people in positions to succeed. That is overwhelmingly, there is data across hundreds of years, not just in sports, but in business, that if you hire great people and you put people in positions to succeed, whether that's financially, whether that's a support system from the top down, uh, whether that's empathetic listening or you know, actually caring about the well-being of your people before profits in many cases. It can be 51-49 sometimes, but caring about people over profits. There is overwhelming evidence that points to what the best leadership styles are. And the things that Passon is talking about articulate the things that owners and rich people who think that, I mean, we're seeing the same thing right now with Elon Musk and Twitter. We're seeing the same thing right now with the FTX guy. Like the people who think I have had this success and I have all the answers are usually the people that run their organizations into the ground. Jerry Jones has been the general manager of the Cowboys for 25 years. He had the answers correct the first time in part with Jimmy Johnson's talent evaluation. And as soon as Jimmy Johnson leaves, 
they don't build anything that can compete for a championship for 25 years. They've been very good. They've been very stable. They also have a lot of money and built a salary cap system that allows them to remain competitive because they are the Dallas Cowboys. They're one of four NFC organizations that hasn't made the Super Bowl since 2006. And that's part because Jerry Jones is probably not the most qualified person to run a football team. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I would lean to the point that he probably is not. But the point's still standing. The the Houston Astros have an owner who wants to be more involved in the day-to-day operations and baseball personnel decisions, which usually goes poorly. Usually goes poorly because that person has... Well, here's a case that I will talk about right here. Internally, multiple names have surfaced who could take over as general manager. This is from the passing piece. From Baltimore Assistant General Manager Sig, Sig Mejdal. Sig Mejdal, there we go. Sig Mejdal, also a vital front office member of the Astros during the Lunau era, to recent Oakland A's bench coach Brad Osmus, former Astros catcher who was in Houston on Friday and met with Bagwell, though it was unclear whether the possibility of Osmus joining the front office was broached. David Stearns, a well-regarded former Astros assistant GM under Lunau, resigned in October as president of baseball ops for the Brewers and plans to stay for the final year of his contract in an advisory capacity. The notion of Crane turning his back on quantitative analysis that underpinned Lunau's decision-making strikes some Astros employees as biting the hand that feeds him, though Crane has suggested he's seeking more of a balance between scouting and statistics. Which of the reported candidates becomes the ultimate decision maker in the baseball operations could force foretell Crane's leanings there. Mej Dahl was hired in 2012 as Astro's Director of Decision Sciences, a title that drew sneers at the time, but today illustrates just how advanced the team was. A former NASA engineer, Mej Dahl is regarded as one of the smartest people in the game, adept at numbers and talking baseball. He joined former Astros scouting director Mike Elias, who went on to run the Baltimore Orioles as assistant general manager and has helped oversee their transition from laughing stock to budding power. And so this is the point that I was talking about before, going back outside of the story. Jim Crane is likely less informed and less qualified to make decisions than a guy with NASA engineering degrees, baseball analytics degrees, and has been in the sport for 10 years and is widely regarded as one of the better it, the better general managers and talent evaluators going forward and has a background in the Astros organization as they were building up the early years of the machine. Again, he was there from 2012 to 2018, so like right as the machine started winning was when he left to go to Baltimore, tore that thing to the ground, and they're building up something that, you know, won 80 games last year, which is a start. It's hard to compete in Baltimore when they don't spend money, but it's it's a start. And so a NASA engineer with 10 years of experience working in baseball front offices and has continually performed well at different levels is probably more qualified than Jim Crane, to make roster and personnel decisions, and the best leaders put those people in positions to succeed. Does that mean Mejdal is the is the perfect candidate to hire? I have no idea who the best candidate to hire would be. They brought in this click guy, and the machine kept on rolling even as he lost some of the luster within the organization and support from ownership. So I don't know whether this thing is fail-proof. 
I don't know whether making a wrong hire will tear this thing down. I don't know exactly what it looks like or how much of a machine the Astros have built. I simply don't know the answers. I also can feel pretty confident saying this Mejdal person or someone of similar caliber, like, say, um, David Stearns with the Brewers, is perhaps more qualified than Jim Crane to make baseball evaluation decisions, considering that his job has been refined, has been learning those skills for 10 years and very specifically learning how to do baseball evaluations. And again, like they said, NASA engineer and one of the smartest people in the game. And this is a a circumstance where even if it's not him specifically, someone of similar resume and of similar experience is more qualified than Jim Crane to run a baseball team. The next part of this story that I found interesting was talking about the Brad Osmus case, who was a manager for a couple years. He was a bench coach in Oakland this year. He's got a personal connection to the organization and a buddy-buddy relationship with Jeff Bagwell, presumably. The next part that I thought was interesting is what Passon concludes with. If Jim Crane does fill the job, the lessons are clear. The person needs to appeal to Crane's impulses, as Lunau did more than click. Crane, sources said, is a demanding boss, generally in a good way. Quote, he gave us resources, one longtime Astros front office member said. He gave us resources and he expected us to do the right things with them. The undercurrent of Crane's desire to be involved especially took root three years ago and only increased during Click's tenure. Now, he has advisors. He has a group of subordinates to execute his decisions. And the clock on a hire is ticking, with free agency already underway, trades being discussed, and the reality that the new general manager might mean even more confusion for a front office staff that's never been quite sure who to believe. So he could hire someone to do the job, or he could follow the path of another Texas billionaire and do it himself. For all the Artie Moreno intrusiveness with the Los Angeles Angels, Jeffrey Loria prying with the Miami Marlins, the last baseball owner to so assert himself was George Steinbrenner with the New York Yankees, the archetypal organizational puppeteer. Jim Crane is not there yet, but he has come closer than most. Like Jerry Jones and George Steinbrenner, his thirst for winning has taken him to places others won't go. Regardless of who takes over, the click affair has proved one thing unequivocally. When it comes to who's running the Houston Astros, neither titles nor contracts matter. It is one person and one person only, Jim Crane. That will be really interesting to follow up on as the year goes along because Houston Astros are a machine. And it's a machine that, as I've talked about, is the greatest thing in baseball since those 90s New York Yankees with George Steinbrenner. And the way they've done it is by building a machine that is able to develop and replace talent in a way that is so, I mean, you talk about the light years ahead thing. It is the Patriots of baseball. It is the Golden State Warriors of baseball. That is what we're talking about with the Houston Astros, where the reason they lose the World Series in large part is because of offensive woes against the Braves. Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman hit about 100 and I think it was like 5 for 47 or 4 for 47 in the series. Well, they slide out $30 million Carlos Correa, slide in Jeremy Pena, and the machine keeps on rolling. George Springer leaves, slide in Chaz McCormick in center field, 
bring up Kyle Tucker to replace Michael Brantley, and then you've got the offensive production lost by Springer and the defensive production lost by Springer accounted for in Tucker and McCormick. You have Garrett Cole, subtract Garrett Cole, Christian Javier throws a no-hitter in the World Series. You lose Zach Granke, slide in Framber Valdez, Framber Valdez pitches a shutout in game two or game six I think it pitches the closeout game of the ALCS and pitches a shutout in game two of the ALCS I'm sorry wait no pitched game six of the world so pitched the closeout game of the world series and pitched a shutout in the ALCS that's what I meant to say so you're looking at that situation and this is exactly where the Houston Astros machine is going to get tested once again. And I'm going to be fascinated to follow up on that as we get more results and more information like from stories like this. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day. That is Monday through Friday every single day. Make sure to leave a five-star review on the show. Make sure to download. Make sure to subscribe, follow, whatever it is that you do. And again, Check out the October 18th podcast that we did talking about Deshaun Watson. It is a way to inform yourself with nuance and perspective and information as it relates to this case before everyone has an opinion and a conversation, informed or not, about this case in two weeks. Take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.